Okay, I think we can start. Let me welcome everyone to the closing session of our Middle East 101 series. Thank you to all of you who have stayed the course, followed our series from the end of August and through September, October and November. When I opened the series at the end of August, I talked about why Singapore should care about the Middle East and what developments there could mean for us. Through the following months, we ran 12 sessions that looked at geopolitical competition in the Middle East. We considered the politics of economic reform as well as factors beyond economic reform. China, the US, political Islam, climate change, social media, youth and women, we left few stones unturned. Many of our sessions were very lively and there were many questions asked, though perhaps not as many answered since we constantly seem to run out of time. I took those as a positive sign of a large audience and one that was engaged enough to ask questions. Knowing that there would be many unanswered questions or questions that you weren't sure you could ask, we decided that in closing our session, we would give our audience a chance to ask their burning questions. And we asked our chairman, Bilahari Kausukan, if he would answer them. Most of you will know Bilahari, a former senior civil servant, Bilahari was not only permanent secretary at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but if I'm not wrong, has served nearly every foreign minister that Singapore has had. Everyone. Uh, but except for one. Everyone. Every single Probably one. Even, okay. even Vivian as uh, ambassador at large. Then, okay, so he has served every foreign minister that Singapore has had. This is a he has been our ambassador in Russia and our permanent representative to the United Nations. Expect frank answers today. I have rarely known Bilhari to sugarcoat anything. He calls it as he sees it. More importantly, his perspectives are big picture, strategic and honest. You may not agree with them, but I'd also say don't discount them. Above all, enjoy today's session. I'm going to hand over to Bilahari before I come back to moderate the questions uh, that you all will be asking. So Bilahari, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks, Michelle. Michel, uh, can you all hear me? I guess so, everything's on. Anyway, look, um, Michelle has told you what this session is about. I don't claim to have all the answers to any all your questions, uh, but I will tell you what I think anyway. And if I don't know the answers, I will tell you. But before we get to the, the question and answer, let me make two very broad points about two huge, two very broad macro developments that are underway in the Middle East and which will have a profound effect, not just on the Middle East, I think, but on other regions as well, um, including ours. The first is, the first of such is a geopolitical one. About 30 years have passed since the Soviet Union imploded, and we are now finally, after 30 years, in the post-Cold War period. In that, it is now clear that there are no existential threats to the United States, and the United States has finally accepted there are no existential threats to its survival. Uh, Terrorism, of course, is always going to be with us because I think it stems from the darkest recesses of human nature and human nature doesn't, does not change. But terrorism, however dangerous it is, is not an existential threat. Russia is not an existential threat. China is not an existential threat. China is a pure competitor, but that's, it will be an exaggeration to call it an existential threat and we can discuss that if, it is, if, if you want to know uh, later. And and because America has finally woke up to the fact 
that it has no, it does not face the kind of existential threat posed to it by the Soviet Union, it is beginning to recalibrate the terms of its engagement with the world, including the Middle East. What is that recalibration? If there's no existential threat, there is really no reason for the, for the US to get directly involved in every damn conflict that occurs everywhere in the world. Now, this is sometimes presented rather simplistically as the US being in retreat. It is not a retreat. As I said, it is a recalibration of the terms of its engagement with the world. This recalibration occurred actually in East Asia, by which I mean Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, almost half a century ago, after the US rectified its mistake in Vietnam. Since that time, the US has not got directly involved in conflicts on the Asian mainland, is not directly stationed troops on the Asian mainland. The presence in Korea, South Korea is a partial exception, but by and large, it has moved to being an offshore balancer. An offshore balancer does not feel obliged to get involved in every conflict. It picks and chooses according to its own interests. And in that role, the US has been remarkably consistent in our region. But it took some time for us to adapt to it, and now the Middle East has, is, has, will have to adapt to it. Uh, this is the larger meaning of the US uh, decide, deciding to cut loose from, the, from Afghanistan, which was another geopolitical mistake, uh, and rectify that mistake. This is, in fact, even the larger meaning of the Abraham Accords. Because what does the Abraham Accord mean? It's not just recognition of Israel by UAE and some other countries. It means this fundamentally. It says, look, I have decided that Iran is a dangerous nuisance, but it is not an existential threat to me. But if you guys think it is, it is an existential threat to you, you better get together and try and do something about it. Right? Now, the Middle East has not yet got used to this new role of the US. Right? And I think it will take them some time. It took us some time in East Asia. It will take them some time. What the implications of this are, are still unfolding, and I do not know what there is. But it's not a retreat from the Middle East. Don't forget, Fifth Fleet is still in Bahrain, and the US Air Force is still in Qatar. And I don't see any of them moving. All right? And the US is still the key factor in the Middle East, perhaps because the countries of the region have not yet adapted to it. It doesn't really matter which side you are on. Look at what happened during the recent conflict in Gaza earlier this year. Russia, China, the Europeans all called for a ceasefire. They were roundly ignored. It is only when the US, when the Biden administration got serious that both Hamas and Israel decided to, enough was enough. Uh, and I think I can give you some other examples. The second, the second big development and big uncertainty is not geopolitical, it is social, cultural, economic. If you look at the Middle East as a whole, frankly, there are only two modern economies in the Middle East, Israel and Turkey. Turkey somewhat mismanaged under present management, but you know, it is still a modern economy and a viable one. And of course, Israel is a very sophisticated high-tech economy. The rest are not modern economies. Some of them, some of the Middle Eastern countries are very rich, but that's a different matter, okay? Being rich and having a viable modern economy are, are two different issues. And many Middle Eastern countries are either failed states or very fragile states. 
But in the Gulf, those states who are rich but not yet modern economies are trying to transform themselves. And this is a great experiment because it's not just an economic transformation. Economic transformation requires social, cultural, religious transformation. They have made progress. Uh, I was in South, I'll give you just one example. I was in Saudi Arabia last in 2018 with some, uh, with, um, with some, uh, with a member of the Middle East staff. I had not been there for some years prior to that. And I was very pleasantly surprised to see Saudi women working in the foreign ministry, in the research institutes, and in some other institutions I, I visited. And working at proper jobs, you know, I'm not talking about working by serving tea or, or things like that, right? They were researchers, they were doing substantive jobs. And that is a very positive deception, uh, positive development. But the experiment is unfolding. Uh, it has gone much further in the smaller Gulf countries like the UAE and Qatar and Oman. Uh, but the whole Gulf is trying to transform itself. In fact, the only country that is stuck in the past is Yemen because it is stuck in conflict. And I don't see any prospect of it getting out of conflict irrespective of which side happens to win. Um, so that, but what happens in these countries, particularly Saudi Arabia, is going to have a profound in influence, not just on the Middle East, but on Southeast Asia, on Europe, and certain parts of Africa. Uh, but there is still, so geopolitics, there's a big transformation underway. Social, cultural, economic, there's a big transformation out of the way. These are profoundly important developments and they're also profound in uncertainties in the Middle East. Now I'll take your questions. Thank you. Okay, can you ask your questions to the MEI events uh, uh, in the Zoom chat? And then uh, those questions will come to me so that I can ask them on your behalf. There was a question that came in earlier today um, from someone, and I think some of it you've already answered, but I will ask you anyway. Uh, yeah, start with that. Um, strategic planners and risk management analysts constantly speak of the known unknown, the unknown unknown, the black swan, so to speak. What might 2022 and beyond hold for the Middle East? I haven't the slightest idea, you know, I'm not a fortune teller, you know, <laughs> nor am I clairvoyant, right? I think, first of all, these two, the two big, those two are the known unknowns. Because we know what's happening, but we don't know how it's going to unfold yeah. in the long run, yeah. and we don't know how it's going to unfold next year. But I think if I would venture a guess, I don't think there is a big risk of a big black swan next year. In both the geopolitical sphere and the uh, social, cultural, economic, religious sphere, these are long-term processes that are being uh, that are unfolding. Um, I don't think we can expect dramatic developments next year. But of course, the Middle East has a, has a way of making foolish predictions, just as the one I've just made, uh, look fo very foolish very quickly. Something could happen, who knows, right? But I really don't have any ideas. I can just give you the big picture because the big picture is pretty clear. But what particular black swans may happen, I don't know. You know, look, um, the, the black swans not necessarily may, may not necessarily be hatched in the Middle East, you know, but somewhere else can affect the Middle East. Let's give, me, give you one uh, example. Let's say there is some kind of conflict in Ukraine that disrupts 
that disrupts uh, Russian gas supplies to Europe. Right? That is a black swan, not in the Middle East, but will have an effect on the Middle East, especially on the, the oil producing states. We had, we just saw yesterday, is it or day before, uh, a coordinated release of strategic reserves of energy, mm. including by the US and, and China. Now that was a kind of direct response to a, a global problem. What will be the long-term effect of that? What will be the effect next year? Will it, will it change the policies of uh, the big oil producers in the Middle East? I haven't the slightest idea, but it could have an impact. So I'm sorry, I can't answer your question because your question is intrinsically unanswerable. <laughs> well, that's true. Okay, I do have a question for you. This is yeah. about Saudi Arabia. Yeah. By all accounts, the Saudi experiment is proceeding at best slowly. Yeah. But as the region's biggest economy, what happens there will have a profound effect, particularly in the three areas you talked about. Yeah. Um, do you can you give us some kind of assessment of what is happening there? Okay, my assessment is so far so good. <laughs> so far so good. Uh, I told you I told you one story about women being changed, right? Uh, but it's a, it's something that is what is being attempted is is audacious and profound, and it will take a long time. This is this is a change of generations. That will take a generation at least, right? Because let's take one example. Whatever you want to do with the economy, socially, culturally, religiously, will mean an overhaul of the education system, right? Actually. A partial overhaul began over the previous by under the previous king with a new university whose name just slips me, where men and women studied together, and whose first president was uh, Professor Xi of NUS. Right? Forgot the name. You remember the name of the university, Michelle? I can't remember right now. It just went out of my mind. Anyway, the name escapes you, me. Huh? But I yeah, know okay. Anyway, but look, anyway, the point is to change the educational system is not something you can do overnight, you know. Uh, it is, it is, and it takes about a generation to see the effects of whatever changes you make, right? Yeah. So one has to be patient, and they, and the obstacles are are profound. But the determination of the Saudi leadership to overcome them is also profound, right? So I mean, what we can do is just wish them well, you know. Uh, I think we got, we have to acknowledge what they have done, but we have also to acknowledge the obstacles that remain. And I think there are three mainly, right? One is to get the pace of change right. It's a profoundly conservative society, and you have to take that into into, uh, into account when when you are planning change. But on the other hand, you cannot allow yourself to be paralyzed by the the nature of the society because that's what you are trying to change, right? So where is the balance? That's not so easy to tell, and and outsiders can't tell. It's for the Saudi leadership themselves to decide. Because they know their own society yeah. best. Yeah. The second factor is I told you education. I mentioned it already, so I, but I mentioned it again. I think it's absolutely key, right? And the educational change is not just at the universities; it's to start from the very beginning, from the primary schools upwards. And the third one is is something even more profound. All the Gulf states are essentially tribal societies, right? Uh, and what is being attempted in all of them is actually to try to detribalize the nature of society because I don't think a tribal society can run a modern economy, really, right? Mm. 
to de-tribalize the society in order to preserve the rule of one particular tribe in all of them, the ruling families. Right? Now that's a paradox that has to be confronted, but how it work out, I haven't the slightest idea. Okay. The university you were talking about, by the way, is the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. Ah, that's right. That's the one. And it's quite a unique experiment because uh, I told you the first president was Professor Xi, former president of NUS, and uh, men and women studied together, you know, in, in the campus. So it's 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 a it's an experiment in changing the educational system that started under the previous ruler, right? Mm. But continues. But I think it's not enough to change the education system at the top, at the tertiary level. You have to start it from the primary level upwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. And that's very difficult in any country. Yeah. Took us years and years and years in Singapore, you know. Yeah, I think people forget that, you know. Yeah. Um, there was a question that's come in about um, the oil strategic reserve. Yeah. Um, OPEC has signaled it will not increase production in response to the recent moves uh, by the US and other countries. So the question here is, what is the game here? You What's know? the game? The game is, let's see who's got the stronger nerves and the longer staying power and the bigger clout and the bigger muscle. It'll boil down to that, you know? Do you think in all this, there will be some kind of, we will see more uh, sort of a serious economic rivalry developed between the Saudi, between Saudi Arabia and the UAE? Well, to some degree, it is already underway, you know, right? But don't forget the UAE, and the UAE has made uh, considerable progress, but the Saudi economy, as you mentioned, Michelle, is a much bigger economy, right? So it will always have a certain um, gravitational pull <laughs> in mm. that region. It's not the Gulf region is not a very big region, you know, if you look at it geographically. Yeah, yeah. So what happens in Saudi Arabia will certainly have an attraction for outside investors for the rest of the region, you know. It, right? So I, I don't think there is a certain degree of rivalry. There's always been, you know, among the Gulf states, right? As, as there has been among the ASEAN states. But thus, as in ASEAN, we cannot ignore Indonesia. Nobody can. Nobody anywhere can ignore Saudi Arabia. It is the biggest economy. It's got the largest population. It is the biggest oil producer. Right? Mm. Right? Okay, yeah. so I, I don't think rivalry is really the right way to uh, look at it. Right? Mm. I think the right way to look at it is whether or not as they both, because all of them have more or less the same goals. Yeah. Right? More or less the same goals. It's whether as they move along in pursuit of those goals, they can develop complementaries complementarities or not, right? Rivalry, competition, this is normal in the global marketplace. You know, it is, it's not something one should take, you know, one should uh, get too excited about, right? But whether they can develop complementarities, synergies, that's another matter. I once in my innocence, when I, many years ago, when I first went to the Gulf, uh, uh, rather than passing through, I went and I traveled around and then I, in, in, my, in my absolute innocence, I asked a friend, you know, I won't mention in which Gulf state. I said, look, you know, you have got a, there's a very nice airport, a very big modern airport in Dubai, right? But every, every, Gulf, every member of the UAE, every Gulf state is trying to build its own airport. 
why don't you all use Dubai as the hub and build and build, invest your money in high-speed rail connections? Because it's a small, it's a small area. And my friend laughed at me. He said, "You really don't understand us, do you?" I've since learned. Huh? But, I'm laughing as well. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. You know, there was a there was an article in Double I Double S by John Rain where he talked about the possibility of a two-speed Middle East developing. Uh, you know, there is a, there is many speeds Middle East already developed. Look, mm. you want to be I want to be thing right. I told you two developed economies, right? Israel yeah. and Turkey. Turkey mismanaged, but never mind. They'll they'll get over it, right? It's still a, a viable economy. You, that's one. That's one level. That's one speed. Okay. Secondly, you got failed states. You can't put Syria together again. You can't put Libya together again. You can't put Iraq together again. And Lebanon is on the verge of becoming a failed state. In fact, I think it's a failed state, but nobody dare call it so, right? Yeah. So that's the second another level. Then you got countries like Egypt and Jordan that are strategically very important but fragile, right? trying their best but fragile. That's a that's another state. And in that in that in that category, you can put countries like Morocco, Tunisia, and so on. They're not that strategically important, but they are doing okay but fragile. Right? Then you have the Gulf, where this big this grand experiment is is underway. So you already have many speeds, you know, right? Ooh. You already have many speeds already. So I I, I know I, I sent you the John Rain article. And it's a yeah. good article, but I think it it's uh, but I think he um, it's already it's already happening, and it's not just at two speeds, <laughs> uh, okay. at least three, I would say, right? Okay. Okay, Yogi has asked the question: How can yeah, Yogi welcome to Singapore? <laughs> okay. Anyway, what's the question? How can Southeast Asia best contribute to positive changes in the Middle East? Well. Links between Southeast Asia and the Middle East are growing. Trade links, investment links, um, all kinds of people-to-people uh, -people links. They are growing, right? Mm. Uh, rather suspended in the last two years for the obvious reasons of the pandemic. But I don't think it will derail the, the, the overall trajectory. Uh, as far as Singapore is concerned, many of the Gulf states are, are looking for lessons from our experience. And we are happy to share them, right? Although I have always, when I was in service, told them, look, you, you better go and look at, you were happy to share with you our experience, but you are very different kinds of society. So you will have to adapt it to, to your own needs huh? because you know your, play, your, your country's best. You might have, you might, and, and we are, and Singapore is essentially a secular state, right? But you, so you might find better lessons in Indonesia, might find better lessons in Malaysia, uh, or Brunei, you know, uh, but I think the, I think it is not a question of a direct contribution, but indirect contribution. Uh, a dialogue between these regions, which had existed in in ancient times, but was disrupted for quite a long period by the colonial experience and other kinds of uh, and the Cold War experience, is being recreated. The connections, the trade routes. Is being connected. Is being um, are being uh, re-established, I would say, and reinvigorated. And uh, that kind of cross fertilization can be very healthy. But I don't think it's something that 
can be artificially forced. You know, it's not something you can grow in a hot house or a greenhouse. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. There's a question about the JCPOA. Yeah. Talks to revive the JCPOA are scheduled to resume next week, but media reports this week have been full of doom and gloom, prompting even uh, prompting even uh, Israel as usual to speak out against a, a, a partial deal. The mullahs are signaling they want more than Biden is prepared to give. What is your prognosis and what happens if no deal is reached? Well, I don't think a deal will be reached. For a start, I think it's not just doom and gloom. The doom and gloom is a realistic ass assessment, right? Mm. Uh, I, even if you get a partial deal, uh, is Biden strong enough to get it through his uh, Congress? If it, right? Because the deal will certainly entail dismantling of some sanctions. I don't see Iran agreeing to anything that does not include substantial dismantling of sanctions. But I don't think Biden is strong enough to, to do that. There are some things he can do unilaterally with executive authority, but many things he can't. So I don't think we should hold our breath for a deal. And in fact, in the longer run, I think a nuclear Middle East is inevitable. It's a very badly guarded secret that my Israeli friends will deny to their last breath that Israel is a nuclear weapon state. Uh, and, and, that, and, so, and I think it's a matter of time only that Iran becomes one. And if Iran becomes one, Turkey, you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt will all have the same thought. Right. In fact, I think those thoughts already exist. Right. Right. So, you know, I think this is a foregone conclusion. I don't believe, however, I'm not one of those who believe that nuclear weapons are intrinsically bad. The Pandora's box is open, nuclear weapons exist. The nuclear weapons kept the peace between the former Soviet Union and, and the US for more than 40 years, despite yeah. some, some periods of grave tension, right? I think they will keep the peace between the US and China. And I think they will keep the peace in the Middle East, provided the countries that possess nuclear weapons are reasonably coherent and rational. Right? And the countries that I think have the, the capability to develop nuclear weapons quickest, uh, which are Israel, Iran, and Turkey, are coherent enough and rational enough for nuclear deterrence to work, right? All things, you know, nuclear weapon-free zones, including the one in Southeast Asia, the one in the Middle East, these are, you know, exercises in futility. Uh, frankly, the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, as far as proliferation of nuclear weapons is concerned, is effectively a dead letter. There are other reasons for the NPT which are important, but that particular reason, non-proliferation, is effectively a dead letter, right? Apart from the five nuclear weapon states, you have India, you have Pakistan, you have Israel, right? right. Five official, three unofficial, threshold state in, in Iran, possible in Turkey, possible in Saudi Arabia. Turkey probably before Saudi Arabia, possible in Egypt too. So, you know, we, we, this is a nuclear weapon world. And there's only one way you deal with nuclear weapons is by nuclear deterrence. Okay. Okay, Alex had a question. Uh, what are the security implications for Chinese investments in Israeli technology and uh, infrastructure? Well, I have told my Israeli friends 
as long ago as about seven years ago, eight years ago, you are going to get into trouble with your, with your best friend, which is the United States. Because they were rather naive about China. Naivety and Israel are not two words I normally use in the same sentence. But with, with regard to China, I told them so seven years ago. Because they have already committed the original sin as far as the United States is concerned. And it's not Adam and Eve and the apple. The original sin, if, as far as the US, China, and Israel is concerned, had to do with UAVs <laughs> more, no, quite a long time ago, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. they have been watched. They were watched. And they didn't, you know, they, but they were quite naive and they were quite uh, sanguine about the whole thing. And now they're woken up. And they have no choice, right? They have no choice. They need the United States. However important China may be, it is an abstract importance, whereas the, new, the, the U.S. importance is direct. There will still be Chinese investment. I told, that my, I told everybody that, that will listen to me, of course, take Chinese investment. Just be careful what you take it for. Right? Right. So I think the Israelis have woken up. The Israeli political security establishment has woken up. And I think the choice for them is very simple. But the choice is not a simple binary one. It is, uh, this is not no longer a binary world. It is to be more discriminating in what you exactly, what kinds of investment, what kinds of joint collaborations you do with China. Because at the end of the day is, and that's something actually, frankly, that all Middle Eastern countries is one of the big geopolitical adjustments that is underway. They are not used to dealing with China. They don't understand this new post-Cold War world. They don't understand the kind of concerns and how to deal with the offshore balancer rather than a direct security provider, right? Uh, you just see what happened in UAE, right? With their port. Yeah. yeah. Right? right? Uh, UAE gave a port to China, a, a port project to China, and the US woke up and said, stop this, and they stopped it. <laughs> because in the end of the day, they have no choice. Right? Mm. Until they develop a joint capability of their own, and they're still very far away from that. To deal with Iran, I mean, right? Yeah, but by the same token, if you think about China yeah. and and what the Chinese are also doing, um, you know, there, there's this there seems to be this naive idea about what they would do and that they would try to replace the Americans, and I think that's very naive. I don't think the oh, Chinese. No, I don't think do so. I don't think the Chinese are that stupid yeah. to try to get involved directly in the Middle East. In fact, I if so I see they 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 try to to get involved only economically, but and in you know a few weapon sales here and there, UAV sales, things like that, but try not to get sucked into the geopolitics of the Middle East. But unfortunately, they are already sucked in. Once the Americans withdrew from Afghanistan, you're on your own, babe. Right? You got this border with uh, with Afghanistan. You can try and cut your deals with, with Taliban. Good luck to you. They have uh, established kind of outposts in Tajikistan along the border, and then also along the border, their own border with Afghanistan. And they will have to try to stabilize that and, uh, the best they can without getting too involved. So good luck to the, the Chinese, you know. Every other great power has been in, has got sucked into Middle Eastern geopolitics. I don't see why the Chinese uh, are somehow magically exempt. Unless, because they need the Middle East. They need the energy. They need yeah. uh, a place to invest, right? So, well, we'll see what happens.
I, I'm actually very interested to see what the Russians do. I mean, they've always been in the Middle East. Uh, maybe they were distracted. Oh, look, look, the Russian economy is about the size of the South Korean economy. Mm. The Russians are best, basically, in my view, played a very weak hand of cards excellently. And mainly because the Americans in the second Obama administration were rather stupid. Uh, John Kerry was a fool. Right? No, I mean it. He was a naive idiot, right? And he got outmaneuvered by Sergei Lavrov, who I have great respect for. He was my counterpart in the UN, right? Uh, and the Russians and the Russians played their weak cards with great skill and with great ruthlessness as far as the military cards were. But I think they are maxed out. What they are doing now is about what they can do, mm. right? Because mm -hmm. they are, after all, a small economy. They can't be everywhere, and uh, no big, no power can be everywhere. You have to prioritize, and their priority must be their eastern border with Europe, the western border with Europe. Right? Yeah. Right? I think uh, that's obvious. They are still, they will still be in the Middle East, they will be still doing more, but they'll still be doing more or less what they are doing. They cannot take over the role of security provider any more than the Chinese want to, to take over that role, right? And yeah. the US is now redefined their role, I told you, to that of the offshore balancer. So the countries of the Middle East better get their act together. When this happened in East Asia about half a century ago, the American move to direct security provider to offshore balancer was one of the factors in Southeast Asia, one of the factors why ASEAN came together. It was not the only factor, but it was an important factor why ASEAN began to work better and better to at least stabilize minimally one region, right? After the Vietnam War. Now the Middle East, you, have, you see some small signs of that, like the UAE, begin to talk to Iran and so on, but it's a very uh, preliminary thing, you know? Abraham mm -hmm. Accord starting, there's some scope there, but they are all at a very, very preliminary stage of adapting to this new reality, right? And uh, the very questions that people ask, can China replace? Can Russia replace? And, I, and you know this, I've heard this from Middle Easterners in the Gulf in particular, shows they don't want to get it yet. Nobody can replace, nobody wants yeah. to. You know? So you better go and get your act together. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to change tag because I got a question that has come in asking about this democracy summit, which isn't strictly Middle East, but Taiwan has been invited. Yeah. And Beijing, uh, and I think even Singapore's leaders have actually warned the Americans not to take the Chinese red lines lightly. But the US appears to be pushing the needle. Are we right. heading further and further down a very dangerous No, I don't path? think so. I don't think so, actually. This democracy summit is one of, is a PR exercise, huh? right? It's a, it's a nice gesture to Taiwan. It, it will not make the Chinese happy. But if they are clever, they will not make too much of a fuss. They can't be quite, totally quiet about it, right? Yeah. Uh, Taiwan is indeed a very dangerous flashpoint, right? But I don't think there is going to be war by design over Taiwan. Right? Uh, the biggest uncertainty in Taiwan, in the Taiwan Straits, is really Taiwanese domestic politics. Right? Because if, uh, uh, if somebody comes to power, the present president of Taiwan, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, has, has taken 
advantage of the opportunities that open up for Taiwan with great skill and great prudence. She has pushed the, the, the envelope, but she has not really, but she has done it with, in a skillful way that the Chinese cannot really have a good excuse to overreact. Yeah. But, but you know, you had, you had the previous DPP president, Chen Shui-bian, was basically a small town politician who suddenly found himself president and was out of his depth and really mucked things up. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and, you know, I... So, it, the, the, the big X factor, China, during the recent Biden and Xi summit, Xi said what? Xi reaffirmed China's position that I'm not in a hurry. Right? And that's reassuring. However, because, they are, and, they are, and there's, a, there's a good reason for that. First of all, although the PLA military modernization has made great progress, it is still way behind, you know, the, not the Taiwanese. Taiwan is, in fact, a bit irrelevant, it, uh, way behind the Americans. And the Chinese cannot be sure that the Americans will stay out. In fact, I think it's now harder for the Americans to stay out than previously yeah. because of the change of the mood in America against, yeah. against China, right? Uh, second, you know, conflict with Taiwan, if they want to try to take over Taiwan by force, huh? it will require an amphibious operation on a scale that probably has not been attempted by anybody since Incheon during the Korean War. <laughs> probably bigger than that, right? Yeah. And the PLA has zero experience in amphibious operations. And anybody can tell you amphibious operations are the most difficult type of military operation to, to, to uh, conduct, right? Now, the X factor here is what exactly is the PLA telling uh, Xi Jinping and the top leaders? Are they telling them, you know, it's going to be a breeze, boss, don't worry. And then we are all in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. But if they're telling that if they're giving them a realistic assessment, then I think, and I think they are because Xi Jinping just reaffirmed, I'm not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry because there is no prospect of doing it now. Right? Uh, and, and if there is a, a, and the US is very likely to be brought in. I don't see how the US can stay out actually if there is a, a big conflict between. So the big risk is one of accidents getting out of control not of a, a deliberate war, you know. On the other hand, I don't think time is on China's side as far as Taiwan is concerned. That is the conventional wisdom. That's the conventional wisdom based on a purely economic analysis. However, there is such a thing as identity and the Taiwanese identity is growing more and more separate from the kind of identity common identity that the, that the PRC would like to see for Taiwan. Uh, so I don't know how this is going to, wake up, uh, to play out, but I think there is no immediate prospect of a war by design. There will be accident. They will try to contain an accident if it happens, right? But there is such a thing as public opinion in China and it's very uh, jingoistic actually. So can they contain it? I don't know, but I think they will try at least because they're not ready. And they're not going to be ready in the next or quite the foreseeable future, you know. Because while China is modernizing its military uh, at a very rapid pace, uh, the US is not a static target, you know, it's not a static goal either, right? Yeah. And there is such a thing as nuclear deterrence. Huh? So yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh
speaking of China and amphibious ops, Professor Wang Gangwu quite pointedly wrote in the Straits Times this week about yeah. China's total inexperience in naval operations. Yeah. But it has been going hammer and tongs about building a blue water capability. Can it be taken seriously? How can it defend its interests then? No, I think it must be taken seriously. They, they, they are, China, as Wang Gangwu pointed out, has traditionally been a continental power. Mm. Right? Now they have to be both a continental power and a maritime power. Mm. Right? And they, are, and they are taking steps to try to build that capability. But the capability is not just the hardware, you know? Right? To build yeah, ships yeah. is a relatively easy thing, you know? Right? To be able to know how to use them right? is another thing. Mm. So it will take some time for them, but they will have to do it. There's no choice. They are a trading nation now. And so their trading nations must be maritime nations. These things about the, the, the land, New Silk Road, you know, the land connections between Europe and, and China is a good PR exercise. But I think as a, as a viable trading route, it just doesn't work because the, the unit cost of land transport is always going to be far higher than the unit cost of sea transport. Right? And most of those trains, as I understand it, are running empty one way or the other. So it's a very good PR exercise. It's very important for the Central Asian countries, particularly Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. But, you know, as a viable trade route, I don't see it, frankly. It's a good PR exercise, and it might, it might be useful for very high-value, low-weightage or low-volume kind of... Uh, goods, right? But if it's really high value and no volume, you might as well fly it rather than take it by train. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. So I, I think we, we should not exaggerate the importance of those land routes. The sea is very important to China and they know it and they are trying to develop a blue water navy. And I think eventually they will develop a blue water navy, uh, but they are not there yet. You know, Look, and there's nothing, nothing wrong or sinister with them because it's a trading country. It's a big trading country. Big trading countries are maritime powers throughout yeah. history. There is no alternative to it. But, and you look right now, right now, if I am a Chinese strategist, I look at the world map, right? How much of my energy is coming from the Middle East? Okay. Now, who protects that sea route of energy supply? It's the fifth fleet and the seventh fleet. Now, how can I rely on my primary rival to protect such a vital commodity? Right? So they will have to develop a blue water navy, and as Prof. Wang pointed out, it's going to be very difficult to them. It's an entire change of mindset for a start, right? Mm -hmm. But they have begun it, and you know, but it will, they are, it will take a long time, put it that way. So we shouldn't get too excited. Let, let me come back to the Middle East, although this has been a it's been very interesting as a as a discussion, and I'm sure the audience uh, is probably being quite interested in all this. But I want to come back to, to talking about the Middle East. You know, you have talked about the sweeping important changes that are occurring through the Middle East. And, um, you know, the question that has come up is, should we care about it? Because, oh, yeah, we, it, I mean, we, know, tried, is, we tried to care, but, you know, we, tried, we have to care about it because it will affect us one way or the other. Yes, but if you look at trade, for example, there doesn't seem to be very much progress. No, the if trade is not the big issue. Trade is not the big issue. The biggest collection of Muslims in the world is not in Middle East, it's in Southeast Asia, right? in numbers. So if the Middle East 
transforms itself, it will have an automatic impact on what happens in Southeast Asia, for better or for worse. If they can develop a new idea of Muslim modernity in the Middle East, which they are trying to, in effect, that's what they are trying to do, right? Because you cannot go and transform your economy into a modern economy without a modern understanding of religion. You don't have to become a secular society. You can still be a religious society, but a different understanding of religion. That's what's being attempted in all the Gulf states. That will have an automatic uh, appeal or automatic influence on what's happening in Southeast Asia. Because after 1979, when the Sunni states led by Saudi Arabia woke up to the threat, they, as they see, saw it, of Shiaism, they started a proselytization movement to, for, for, for leadership of the Muslim world with, in competition with Iran, right? And that's when the proselytization of their particular variant of Islam around the world and in Southeast Asia in particular began in earnest. Now, if they transform their understanding of what it means to be a Muslim, it will have an influence in Southeast Asia. And what happens in Southeast Asia definitely has an influence on us. So it's, the, the economic aspect is just a, it's a secondary aspect. This is a far more important aspect. But you look at what's happening in Malaysia, right? Uh, not very positive things, frankly, uh, on the religious front. They're becoming more, less and less tolerant, less and less space for non-Muslims, right? Uh, if that can be checked or reversed, I think it's better for the stability, long-term stability of Malaysia. Indonesia, President Jokowi is, is trying to re-promote or reinvigorate the traditional Indonesia understanding of Islam. Right? Whether he will succeed or not is still an open question. I mean, but and that is a direct response to an earlier wave of influence from the Middle East. Right? So you know, uh, I think you know Singaporeans tend to look at things through an economic lens, and that's important, of course. But in this case, it's not the most important thing. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um Asif has asked the question, which I'm going to, I'm trying to, oh, okay, hang on. Summarize There's it. Another question. <laughs> Wait, oh, hang on a second. He's actually asking about whether the practice of diplomacy has changed uh, worldwide in the last 50 years. But oh, it has. It has, of course. But I think really what I, what I would find more interesting, uh, you know, and I mean, I have my own views, but I also want to hear what you have to say since I was in MFA as well, um, about um, how we engage uh, the Middle East. You know, there's always this cross-cultural understanding of how, how people do things, how people work, how they engage, you know. Um, and I, I guess the question is, if you look at how we deal with the Middle East and how they reach out to the rest of the world because they have made quite a concerted effort to reach out and yeah. you know carry out diplomatic activities. Has this changed? How has it evolved? In the Middle East, you're talking about the Middle East. Yeah, Middle East. Well, I think uh, one of the lessons that Qatar learned from the recent unfortunate episodes in their relations with their neighbor is that money can't buy you anything. It can get you into a lot of trouble too, right? Oh. Diplomacy in its traditional sense has changed profoundly not just in the Middle East, everywhere. But the Gulf states in particular have become much more active diplomatic actors, at least in their own region. They're trying to influence events. And that's understandable. You know? 
Now, whether they will succeed or not, so far the record is rather mixed. Mm. Right? Mm. Uh, that, but that is a particularity of the military. It's not about diplomacy itself. It's about trying to use the tools to influence their fate rather yeah. than just passively accepting their fate, right? Relying on the British or the Americans, on it. but it's still at a very early stage. And uh, Qatar, though, you know, has been a bit clumsy in, in many things it did. You know, that's not, I think that's a fair assessment, right? Mm -hmm. You're not wrong to try to influence their fate. I mean, like Singapore does not sit passively by and wait for things to happen to us, right? So it's I can understand not. why they want to, all the Gulf states want to influence things, right? Yeah. But, uh, but first of all, they, they haven't, they, their record is mixed, huh? let's put it that way. I think probably the most successful one so far has been the UAE. So there was a question here that, that talked to, come back to Indonesia. Huh? Indonesia recently signed a $7 billion deal with the UAE. Do you see the Emiratis using economic means to promote uh, what you've been talking about? That is a certain strain or practice of Islam. Uh, and teaming up with the world's most populous Muslim nation? Well, I don't think they will succeed uh, entirely. It's not the UAE that is the problem in this case, you know. Hmm. The UAE actually has been quite um, um, prudent in, in this. No, I think these investments in Indonesia are, are investments for the sake of investment. It's not for the sake of getting political leverage. They... Yeah. They need to invest their money, you know, because the energy industry is a sunset industry. Yeah. They know this. All of them know this. It's going to be a long sunset. Huh? It's not going to be a very quick sunset, yeah. right? It's going to be a very long sunset, uh, a northern hemisphere sunset during the summer solstice, right? But it's going to be a sunset anyway, right? not a tropical sunset that comes very suddenly. So they have to, they have to find other ways to generate income and investing in Indonesia, why not, right? Indonesia needs the investment. It's good for us that Indonesia uh, receives the investment because you know it, it, it helps it helps develop the Indonesian economy, right? So I don't see this as an instrument of influence. I mean, anyway, the UAE has been rather prudent in this respect, in, to my mind anyway, compared to some of the other Gulf states. Only one more prudent in this respect is Oman, but Oman doesn't have too much money, unfortunately. Oman. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Alex asked another question. He's asked for your opinion on the trajectory of the Saudi religious and political spheres of influence in Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul. And also uh, the same thing, but applying to Turkey. Well, there is a religious layer to the geopolitical competitions going on in the Middle East, right? Mm. Uh, and Afghanistan is going to be one of the arenas, right? How it will play out, I have no idea. Because Afghanistan is one of the most complicated in arenas because it's an incoherent arena. And I don't think the Taliban is going to be any more successful and any previous authority in Taliban in imposing coherence. In fact, it is already disintegrating after the victory, just a few, few weeks, right? right? So I don't know the answer to that, but, I can tell, but it is happening, as Alex knows. It is happening, but what will, will happen, I have no idea. They will compete with each other 
who will what in what way with what outcome i have no idea whatsoever because you have the taliban you have isis k you have god knows what other groups in there you know Which will make it complicated, not just for Saudi Arabia, but for everybody, for everybody, for the Afghans most of all. But you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, let me just look at if there are other questions that have come in. Uh, hang on, I'm just reading one of them to see what it is that they're asking. I may have asked you all the questions that have been asked. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything else. Yep. Any more questions, people, audience? Your questions are welcome. We have time. Maybe you've answered everything that they wanted to ask. That's not possible, uh, you know, but anyway. <laughs> They're afraid to ask. Please ask your burning questions to the audience. Uh, I think the, the events team is on standby waiting to... No, the, I mean, Asif had a passion. Oh, that's the one about diplomacy, is it? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Wait on. There's a question asking about fake news uh, and whether it could become a key weapon in, in modern warfare. And I think it is already a key weapon in modern warfare. Political yeah. warfare, gray zone operations, you know, fake news is part of the arsenal. Yeah, and it's not new. Really. It's not new. Misinformation, disinformation. Uh, it's been done for, for these are, these are, no, What is new is the instruments. To carry it out which are much more effective mm. than in the past right mm. social media things like that right yeah, uh yeah. but uh, this this is it's always been a weapon of warfare right mm. yeah yogi has asked yeah. um do you think that water may be a game changer in the middle east <laughs> game changer in the sense you know that they may it, it may lead to wars if you look at the broader Middle East, look what's happening between Ethiopia and Egypt. <laughs> it could lead to a war, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can look, uh, I mean, Israel and Jordan, I think it was, it's unlikely to lead to war, but water is going to, it's a scarce commodity, it will get more scarce, right? Yeah. And it can lead to wars, not just in the Middle East, <laughs> in other regions too. Right? Yeah. So water is, is is an important commodity it is life uh, fortunately perhaps that part of the middle east where we are most interested in uh the gulf you know they have the money they have the resources to adopt new technologies to generate water right? things like desalination reverse osmosis to process used water these are getting cheaper and cheaper and they'll probably get cheaper uh, 
So it could be very well a game changer in one way or another. No, I, I, well, when you mean game changer, I, I don't quite understand what you mean. You think it's going to fundamentally change political or geopolitical dynamics in the Middle East? I don't think so, but it could enhance them for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not a new factor. It's not a new factor. Water has always been a factor in, let's say, Arab-Israel relations. It's always been a factor. Uh, now there's a new factor. It's a new factor in, I mean, it's actually an old factor because the, the, the deals that Egypt is accusing Ethiopia of uh, breaking were done during colonial times, actually. I mean, they started, that's their origin anyway. Because the Nile is such a great importance, but the Nile doesn't originate in Egypt. or It's up in Ethiopia, right? So these are not new factors per se, but as but water as the populations increase, as uses of water increase, it becomes a more important factor. But game changer, I'm not so sure. Okay. Um, there's a question about the future shape of the Abraham Accords and what you see as its as its uh, future future shape. You talked a bit about it as part of the Americans sort of sending a very clear message that which was that they were going to step back, uh, you know. Oh, look, okay. I think, you know, the Abraham Accords, I've told my Israeli friends over and over again, I understand why you're very happy about it, right? Because you you are always chasing this, uh, this holy grail of recognition. Mm -hmm. And good, I'm glad for you. However, the broader meaning of the Abraham Accords is as follows, as I told you, right? I, the United States, do not think Iran is an existential threat. If you and your and the Gulf states think it's an existential threat, you better get together and do something about it. And we ask, and you know, the, the, the question of diplomatic recognition is actually the, the instrumentality is not the end, <laughs> right? Israel can also contribute, I think, as UAE in particular has realized, to their economic transformation efforts. And that all has begun, right? But the geopolitical importance of the Abraham Accords is only at a very preliminary stage. Will, will other countries follow suit? I think uh, not in the immediate future. Right? Not in the immediate future. Uh, but... I wouldn't rule it out entirely in the longer term, in the next 10 years or so. Depends on how the bigger geopolitical picture evolves, right? Mm. Okay. Tony Butcher has asked this question. What effect will the movement to transition away from fossil fuels have on the Middle East economies? Is this something they are adequately preparing for or are they still going to be addicted to seeking high oil prices to fuel their domestic budgets? Well, I think, uh, I think they have realized that they have to transform their economies. That's one of the second transformations I have talked about. But economic transformation is never just economic. It requires cultural, religious, social change, right? And they, they know this too, right? And they are doing it. So I think it's not a question of recognition. Um, as I said earlier, I think the energy industry, they know it is a sunset industry. But as I also said earlier, I think it's going to be a long sunset, a northern hemisphere, summer solstice sunset, rather than a tropical sunset that comes very suddenly. Because it's all very well to think that we all are going to have to rid ourselves of fossil fuel. 
right? But alternative energies are still fairly limited what you can do. Ours is a fossil fuel civilization, right? And when you're talking of weaning yourself of fossil fuels, whether in Europe or Southeast Asia or Singapore or, or China, you are really talking about a very fundamental change in the way you organize your societies and your lives, right? And, and it's easier to talk about it than to do it. So I think these Gulf states, uh, among others, have some time, have time, right? It's not something that is going to uh, happen day after tomorrow or next week or the next few years. They have time. I think they've recognized the problem. I think they're beginning to take steps. But as I thought, talked about it a bit in the, my opening remarks, uh, these are very difficult things to do and it takes a long time. So they have the time, they have the resources. Mm -hmm. I think they have the political will, but they are still up against uh, rather conservative societies because for the simple reason, as I said, and I think it's best stressing again, economic change, economic transformation cannot take place without social, cultural, religious transformation. Right? The two things go together. Right? And, uh, and that's where the obstacles lie. It's not in the lack of a vision. It is not in the lack of a, uh, a political will. It is whether you can overcome the, these obstacles because these are deeply conservative societies. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not totally, I, I, can, I think we have to acknowledge what they have done as well as acknowledge the enormity of the task before them, right? Yes. Uh, uh, one thing I wish they would do is to stop listening to people like McKinsey, you know? <laughs> That's what I think too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 you know. Okay, let's assume that sunset comes sooner rather than later and some of the Gulf states at least are setting up in ways that could conceivably threaten Singapore's lunch in some way. In what it's way? a different part of the world, certainly, but in a globalized world, could we become direct competitors in some areas and how do we hold our edge? Look, you know, of course they could become direct competitors in some areas. I mean, to some degree, Dubai is already a direct competitor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, you know, competition is a fact of life. Singapore has not shied away from competition. And if we lose the competition, we have only ourselves to blame. True. Right? Yeah, we, yeah. you know, so I, I, I don't see that as a big deal, you know. Mm. You know, our competition now is not just the Middle East. Our competition, when, when EDB goes out, right, and competes for foreign investments, they are not competing against Malaysia or Indonesia or Thailand or Vietnam. Uh, they are competing against Washington State in the US or New York State. <laughs> that is the nature of the, comp or, or, you know, one of the landers in Germany. That is the nature of the competition we have faced. And, you know, we have always faced this kind of thing. So Middle East is just one more competitor. So it's not a big deal, you know. We should not be afraid of competition. We have never been afraid of competition. Because the day we become afraid of competition, that's the day we go down. Yeah. 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 I want to come back to, the, to this whole water issue, not about whether it's a game changer, but Ethiopia and Egypt have had... Um, uh, quite a bit of uh, and quite a bit of unhappiness between the two countries over the dam yeah. on the Nile. You know, yeah. and the question here that's asked is: Would they could they come to blows over this dam? I think they have threatened blows, you know, already. Yeah, they have. They have threatened blows, and it could come to that, you know. Look, 
Ethiopia is not the most coherent country. They're already fighting a civil war, in effect, you know, as well as an international war with Eritrea, right? Which was once part of Ethiopia, which they actually have not reconciled themselves to having lost, right? Uh, and Egypt has a military government. It's got a lot of problems. And a, a nice little war is always a very tempting thing, you know, to, to have to, to distract your... your to distract people from your domestic problems. And this one is a substantive issue. I mean, I can see why the Egyptians are really very upset about this whole thing because water, the Nile in particular, is the life, the lifeline of Egypt, right? Yes. Right? Yes. So I can see why they're very upset. But on the other hand, if you start a war with this thing, you better win, you know? <laughs> right? And you, yeah. and I don't know, I don't think either side is very confident of winning, you know? Mm, 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 uh, they talk they talk very confidently but are they really very confident yeah. uh, I, i'm not so sure right yeah. we have spoken for you have spoken for about an hour yeah we are supposed to have another half an hour or so but yes. if there are questions i'll be happy to take them if there are no questions let us not artificially prolong <laughs> i think we have the, the, the questions have sort of dried up. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you want to just make a few remarks before we, we wrap no, up. I don't know. I think, you know, we will... I don't have any substantive remarks to make unless there are some other burning issues that that uh, are on somebody's mind. But I think we are always trying to... The reason we have... Um, we started this ME 101... Um, 101 series of lectures, and this is how many iterations already, Michelle? Four or five? Longer, more than that. Oh, more than that, right? We've been doing this, I think, about six or seven years. Six or seven years, and we are trying to constantly improve it, right? Yeah. So those of you who have attended at least some of the lectures, if you have got any uh, suggestions on how it can be improved, right? New topics that we want to, that you think we should introduce, into it, please uh, write to us, send us your suggestions. Uh, we, may not, we may not be able to take all of them, but we will try to, to take your views into, con into consideration when we try to structure the next, next year's ME 101 series. The fundamental idea is to tell Singaporeans and other people who are interested that the Middle East is not just about war and conflict, mm. uh, because there's much more going on there. War and conflict is inescapably part of the Middle East, but the economic, social, cultural, religious transformations are equally, if not more important. And, you know, we tried in structuring this thing to show what's happening in various fields, you know, right? Because I think in Singapore, when we think of Middle East, the first thing that comes to mind is the Palestinian issue, which is important, but steadily diminishing in importance, even to Middle Easterners, not to the Palestinians, of course, but to most Middle Easterners, it's a matter of lip service, I think. Governments, I'm talking about governments, not peoples. Huh? Uh, but there's more to it than there. There are many things going on, the two big things I mentioned, plus subsets of those two big things. Uh, just one small example, I think we had, do we have a, a session on role of women in the least? Yes. Uh, we had one, right? Women, yes. uh, that is changing, you know, uh, in a good way, in a positive direction. Not fast enough, perhaps, but, you know, at least in the right direction, right? 
uh, role of youth in the Middle East is very important because it's a very young region. And that's part, that's a potential asset and a potential liability, a problem. <laughs> right? uh, there, is, there is a cultural aspect, maybe we could, we could um, consider having one lecture next year on, on some cultural aspect of the Middle East. Right? Yeah. But we do it separately, actually. We do, yeah. we do have some such things. Uh, so there are many things that are going on. Uh, and all of them, in one way or another, affect us in Southeast Asia. Through the modality of religion, generally, ultimately. Right? To have a new role for, for women means a change in your understanding of what aspect of how Islam should be practiced. Right? Which actually, I think the role of women in the Middle East had more to do with the Bedouin culture than anything to do with religion, but they got mixed up. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, there are many things that we can do in this thing, but we, we were always trying to keep this in manageable size. I mean, we can have 100 lectures on the Middle East, right? Yeah. But that's too much, right? So we try to keep it to about a dozen or so. Yeah. 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 So are there any more questions? I mean, I'm willing to, to stay here as long as there are people who are interested. I think Clemens has just jumped in with a question. Yes, Clemens. What, ah. is, what is your take on the view in some quarters that socio-cultural socio reforms in the Middle East are merely a mask, but authoritarianism remains the order of the day and will continue to be? Social-cultural reforms does not mean democratic reforms, you know, right? So I think this, uh, this, uh, the, uh, people who hold that view are usually people from the West who believe that there is only one, one trajectory to reform, right? It does mean a certain broader space for individuals, right? But that, that broader space can be provided under a, a whole variety of regimes. It would be wrong to think of these reforms, I think I did mention it in my open remark, as intending to change these, uh, fundamentally change the political systems of these countries. In fact, it is intended to preserve the political systems of these countries, which are mainly monarchies in the Gulf. Right? So I don't see any intrinsic contradiction. There may be, but they will have to create more political space. That is true. But political space can be, to my mind, created under a different variety of political systems, including monarchies, right? right. So I don't see, I think the, the view that Clemens uh, articulated, or it's not his view, I don't think it's his view, it's just a, a view, it's a rather silly view and a rather ethnocentric view, Western ethnocentric view. That's your answer, Clemens. Okay, there was a question uh, which I was I forgot and I just come back to look at it now. There's a question asking um, if you had any views about the comeback of Syria into the Arab diplomatic scene. Did he ever leave? You mean Assad? Nah? He means Assad, right? I think I what he means because Syria never Assad. left. Syria is an issue when did, since when did he left the Arab diplomatic scene? He never left. But I think what he's talking about is recognition of the Assad government. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I think that's recognition of reality because everybody thought the West, as well as many of the uh, Arab states, thought Assad was done for. Mm. Right. But he proved much more resilient and ruthless 
and ruthless and resilient because he was ruthless. And so he yeah. is a new reality and you have to deal with things that are not things as you like them to be or hope for them to be, right? Mm. And they may have hoped that Assad would disappear conveniently and the Alawis would disappear conveniently, but they are still there. And if they are still there, you would, and it looks like they are going to be there for the long term, so you better deal with them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's... Yeah. I don't see anything special about that. Okay. Are there any more questions? If there are not, I think we might wrap this up. Okay. Oh, hang on. Nope. Looks like there's a question coming in. All right. What is your view on Iran? For example, how should it engage with its neighboring countries with the US and how ought it to grow its own country? What challenges does it face? The challenge it faces is fundamentally an incompetent governance system uh, under the mullahs and the revolutionary guard. <laughs> the Iranian people, I think everybody knows, are immensely talented people. Right? Uh, who have unfortunately been saddled with a rather with two rather bad political systems, one under the Shah and now one under the Mullahs. Right? Uh, Iranians, when they get out of Iran, have always done well. In, in, in the US, in Europe, the Iranians have uh, done very well. But they are talented people. They are very clever people. Uh, how should he get along with his neighbors? Well, you know, don't forget, uh, it's the revolutionary... Islamic Revolutionary Republic, you know, it's uh, it's not it's a republic, and it's revolutionary, and it has, and the 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 fact that it practices Shiaism is a third factor, right? Now I think they will have to come for, to find some kind of peaceful accommodation, uh, peaceful coexistence with their neighbors. Uh, otherwise, I think a big war. There's already a proxy war going on in Syria, uh, in Yemen. So far, Lebanon has stayed out of it, right? So far, anyway. But whether they will continue to stay about it is another matter. Mm. Uh, there are all kinds of little proxy wars going on. But I think unless some modus vivendi is reached between the Iranians and its neighbors, uh, a big war is almost inevitable. I mean, the only way to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon is a matter of time, no? is war, right? And war is always uncertain, and war is, all, of course, immensely costly. Unfortunately, because of the revolutionary nature of Iran, because of the, the way it legitimates its particular system, I don't think it can, I don't think peaceful coexistence can be anything more than a temporary expedient. On the other hand, I don't think uh, regime change is a viable option either. So I think, you know, you will just have to live with this state of uncertainty. But a temporary accommodation is would certainly be desirable. I mean, the Iranians are not irrational. Okay, Even the mullahs are not irrational. Yeah. But the, the way they legitimate their rule, their right to rule, depends on an ideology that is outwardly aggressive, uh, you know, intellectually aggressive. Uh, it relies on an uh, idea of themselves as 
leaders of the Muslim world, right? Which is not uh, which is not accepted by obviously Saudi Arabia and many other uh, Sunni Arab states, right? So I am not very optimistic about the future of Iran's relations <laughs> with its neighbors, right? Uh, Turkey is an X factor huh? because if you are looking at religion, if you think religion is a driving force, Turkey should be on the side of the Arab states, but it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. So, so you know, in the in the Middle East, I, I you know I think Olivia Roy gave us a good lecture on this. Is everything is justified in the name of religion, but religion usually has very little to do with what is going on. Yeah. Except as the justification or the cover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or the means of mobilizing people. Yeah. For for goals that have got nothing to do with religion. With religion. Hmm. So I'm not I'm not very optimistic about the future of Iran's relations with its neighbors. And I think on this present trajectory, even if there is a a new JCPOA, I think war is inevitable in the mm. long run. Big war. I'm not small war is going on already. Okay. You froze for a little while, so we kind of lost what you last said. I said that on the present trajectory, even if there's a JCPOA, it just buys some time, right? And the present trajectory of Iran and of its neighbors, a big war will happen sooner or later. And it will be immensely destructive and immensely disruptive to the entire world economy. Agree, agree. Well, that was our last question. Okay. So I think we please join me in thanking our chairman for spending more than an hour with us taking a wide variety of questions uh including some that had nothing to do with the middle east yeah. but i think were nonetheless very interesting questions that were asked um so we thank you for your time we thank all okay. of you for your support of the middle east 101 series and um you know we we welcome you to continue to attend and join us at our events which will continue to be virtual i think for quite for at least the first part of next year. So thank you all very much. Uh, thank you to Chairman, and uh, we'll see you at our next event. Okay. okay. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you.